3: This episode of Clear and Vivid with Brian Green is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Discovery.
2: For more than 30 years, Discovery's global networks have been helping hundreds of millions of viewers understand their lives, their communities, and the world around them. From science and nature to food and lifestyle, and now the world's biggest sporting events and greatest names in travel and documentary films. The Discovery family proudly informs, entertains, and powers the passions that drive our planet.
3: Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at four ninety nine ninety nine dollars and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.
2: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, Conversations about connecting and communicating.
1: When I see a young kid and I'm talking to them about black holes or the Big Bang and I and I see their eyes light up in a way that tells me that they're so fired up about this cool idea. And when they say to me, I didn't even know that was science. Uh. You know, at that point you say, wow, this is something that it's, it's just tragic. For, for, for kids and adults to not at least be given the opportunity to wander around some of the most wondrous ideas that the species has ever developed.
2: Brian Greene is not only a brilliant theoretical physicist, but he's also a man dedicated to bringing the wonder of science to the rest of us, and that includes me. Brian and his wife, Tracy Day, asked me to join them a dozen or so years ago when they began the World Science Festival and it's been a continuing education for me ever since. I've interviewed some of the world's sharpest minds on dozens of stages in New York and Brisbane, happily contributing my ignorance and curiosity to the job of bringing their work to a wider audience. The festival captures Brian's extraordinary ability to bring a scientist's understanding of nature at a very deep level, up to the surface where we are so we can enjoy it too. I'm always curious about how someone is able to do that. So I invited Brian in for a conversation at our studio in Manhattan. Brian, I'm so glad to be here with you today. My and pleasure. And, Thank and you for the having me. You're the first person to sit down at this table and look at something inscribed on the table. People write with the uh, Sharpies on the table. And what did you see? Well, right in front of me is the Einstein-Hilbert action. That—that That is the... Uh, the, the
1: prime way of deriving Einstein's field equations of the general theory of relativity. So some erudite guest in the some show has uh, left that as a relic on the
2: table here. See, you guys speak a secret language. <laughs> this is not good for the rest of us. So tell me about – Hilbert was a great mathematician. Yes, he was a
1: – One of the greatest—some will say he's the greatest mathematician of the last few hundred years.
2: And when when was he alive?
1: Well, he was alive in the 20th century and famously had an ongoing— Battle during the month of November of 1915, as God, he and
2: that's Einstein how you know the dates. I yeah. love this. He had a battle with Einstein. Yeah,
1: he and Einstein were both racing to the finish line, trying to complete the equations of the general theory of relativity. And the equation that you have on the table here, somebody wrote with a sharpie, was Hilbert's way of getting to the equations of gravity. Einstein had a different way of getting there, and they both basically got to the finish line at the
2: same time. So why do we know about Einstein with relation to this and not not Hilbert? I mean, the, the general public. It's a good question. And
1: uh, it's largely the fact that Einstein was working toward this solution for 10 years. And he met with Hilbert in June of 1915 and told him everything he knew. So Hilbert just started from June of 1915 and was only working for a few months. Nevertheless, he was such a brilliant mathematician that with the hints that Einstein gave him, he was able to finish it off on his own. But it was really Einstein's ideas that got the ball rolling, and he had kept the problem alive for all those years.
2: And this brings up the question of how poor was Einstein as a mathematician? He he didn't, He didn't. seemed to always be getting help on his math.
1: Well, people like to— I mean, he was looking it, at the other guy's <laughs> homework a lot. <laughs> it's a romantic way of thinking about Einstein that— he was a genius, but he couldn't add two plus two. you know <laughs> yeah, and people yeah. love those kind of stories,
2: you know that you know the story about playing violin,
1: yes, that he we, couldn't count uh,
2: Albert yeah. one, two, three, four, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, but
1: he was a fantastically gifted mathematician. Uh. And to work out the tensor calculus, which is the body of mathematics necessary to derive and develop the equations that now bear his name, was a fantastic achievement in an era when people weren't teaching that subject to Uh, physicists. I mean, you know, I, I like to tell people that now undergraduates routinely take classes of mine where we teach the methods that Einstein needed to work out his equations. But Einstein had no such teacher in those days.
2: So he worked it out on his own? He worked
1: it out on his own. And yes, he had conversations with various mathematicians to help him along. But how amazing to take a body of mathematics that nobody really thought would be relevant to the force of gravity and somehow be able to blend his intuitive ideas with the rigorous equations to come up with the final result. That, that's an amazing achievement.
2: So this is really at the heart of what this program is about. You sat down at the table and you saw that equation and it spoke your language. Yeah. I've looked at it a dozen times. <laughs> I thought somebody had made a mistake with the Sharpie. Right, right. So how do we get from your understanding of that equation to my understanding of it? Right. How, how, and, and I know you've spent a lot of your life figuring out how to do that, and we've worked together on that for a decade or right. two. What do you think is the, the way to do it that's most effective? Well, my feeling is that the
1: actual mathematics itself— is really a very specialized language that it's not necessary for everybody to speak. Similarly, I mean, if there were things written on this table in Sanskrit, I'd have no idea what they are. They would just look like symbols to me. And if someone could come along and translate the Sanskrit into a language that I understand, I'll be satisfied that I get the gist of what those symbols mean. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to translate from the mathematical equations into a more common vernacular using analogies, using, you know, plain old explanations, using visuals. And I think people can get pretty close to an understanding of what the mathematics is trying to tell us using that approach. I mean, there's an interesting question. I think you and I have kicked it around in the past from time to time. Is Are you always going to be missing something?
2: That's what I was going to ask you yeah. next. I, you, it sounds like you have binoculars into the dark, unknown reaches of the universe yeah. that I'll never have possession of. You can see things or at least are convinced you can see things. (laughs) Because I can't check out your math. I don't know how. But you seem to be able to see things in a way that I'll never be able to see them if I don't have the language of math. I'd like to say that you're
1: completely wrong and you can see everything. However, I think there's some truth to what you're saying. You do have a deeper, fuller way into the ideas if you understand the mathematics. Just as, I mean, with the analogy with Sanskrit... I'm sure there are nuances and subtleties of certain ideas that are expressed in, say, a foreign language, Sanskrit yeah, or whatever. There are
2: probably colorful insults
1: in Sanskrit. Yeah, there you go, exactly. That you know.
2: you'll all you'll, 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 you'll take it literally if yeah. you had just have a basic understanding.
1: Yeah. So so you see that you are missing something in translation. Yeah. There there always is that case, and it's it's the case too with the mathematics. I mean, when I look at this equation on on the table, and for those of you who are interested, it's integral d four x root minus g, where g is the determinant of the metric times r, which is the scalar curvature. When I was I,
2: just going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish you hadn't been so quick.
1: You know, so so what, so what? So when I look at that equation, I do see a lot of things going on there. In my mind, I see curved surfaces, and I see a mathematical gadget that measures distances on that curved surface, and I see another mathematical gadget that uses those distance relations to determine whether the surface is curved or flat. And all of that happens immediately when I look at this equation, just because I'm trained to recognize the symbols. And you definitely don't get that if you don't speak the language, but you can get the basic idea that Einstein was saying that warps and curves in space push things around, much like if you have a bowling ball and a rubber sheet is the canonical metaphor that we love know, to use. I know, and, and, and and I know. And that's what's
2: happening. My memory is that Einstein himself came up with that image and and it's a two dimensional image, which yeah. always throws me. It is it's... because it's as if you had a rubber sheet and you put a bowling ball. You stretch the sheet tight. You right. put a bowling ball in the middle; it dips down a little under the weight of the ball. Right which already is explaining gravity by using gravity to explain it. I I agree with you completely. It's it's a little bit running in circles on itself. It is totally
1: running in circles. And the problem with most analogies and metaphors is if you push them too far, they break.
2: Yeah, that's true. But just to complete that for anybody who hasn't heard it before, the idea, as I remember it, is the bowling ball makes the rubber sheet curve dip. And if you without the bowling ball, if you roll, say, a ping pong ball across the sheet, it'll go in a straight line. But when you put the bowling ball on, it has to curve with the uh, with the sheet, and it takes a curved route to the other side. Exactly. Leaning toward, dipping down toward the bowling ball. That's right. This curve thing, this word curve, I really have a lot of trouble with that. What does it mean? Is is it a mathematical term? Are you describing something in math? It
1: is. And in fact, it has a very concrete meaning that many of us know about from, if you recall, in junior high school, you learned the Pythagorean theorem, which says that if you have a a nice right triangle that's drawn on a flat piece of paper— Remember, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. One of my
2: favorite things. No, really, I (laughs) do. I love that. I I love the Pythagorean theorem.
1: But here's the thing. If you took that triangle and you drew it not on a flat surface, but, for instance, on the surface of a basketball or the surface of a trumpet where it would either curve inward or bloat outwards, A squared plus B squared would not equal C squared. And that's one way of thinking about what curvature means. It's an environment in which when you draw a triangle— A squared plus B squared does not equal C squared. The flat case, the one that we learn about in school, is the one with no curvature, and you can intuitively understand that. The surface of a table is nice and flat, whereas the surface of a bowling ball or a basketball or a trumpet is not flat. So what have I just learned? Well, you've learned that the way we talk about curvature mathematically is by violations of that formula that you learned in junior high school. So when that formula holds than the surface.
2: The environment is flat. Ah, this came from my saying, what yes. is this with the word curve? Exactly. What's another way to say curve that'll help us is it visualize it? Is it possible to
1: visualize this? It is. I mean, curved and warped are the two words that I am most fond of. And, you know, a nice image to have in mind is take the Mona Lisa. We all know.
2: Exactly. Ah, you know, I tried. They arrested me. Right. Actually, Less aggressive taking. The Mona Lisa <laughs> was stolen, I think, in 1911. Is that maybe for the... This purpose, they're they're, trying to illustrate
1: curvature. They're
2: not sure they got the real one back. Oh, you're kidding! That's what I read. Is that true? Isn't that interesting? Oh my god! So no, no, that has nothing to do with the curve. (laughs) Yeah, but but that's much more interesting. (laughs) No, but it's a little diversion to give everybody a break. So okay, so give me another word for curve. So so warp. Let's use warped. So imagine you take the Mona
1: Lisa and it and it gets wet, and the canvas stretches, and it becomes all motley with various bubbles and things in it. The Mona Lisa will look different. And the reason it will look different is because the distance relations between various locations on her face will have changed because the canvas has stretched or compressed. Mm. And it's that warping of the image that is the diagnostic that allows us to know that that surface is now curved, whereas it was previously flat. Einstein declared that objects always move on the shortest available trajectory. And so if the Mona Lisa or space itself undergoes some kind of warping and curving, the trajectories that are the shortest ones change. On a flat surface, we know the shortest trajectory. It's the straight line from one dot on the table to another dot on the table. But in a warped environment, the shortest trajectory can be
2: unusual. This is why when I flew from Copenhagen yes. to Los Angeles, I didn't fly in what I thought was a straight line which would have taken me over in New York, yep. I flew over the North Pole. That's right. And that was the shortest route. That's right, because the, the, exactly, the shortest
1: routes on a, on a sphere are so-called great circles, which are circles that pass through the, uh, the diameter, right? So they are the largest possible circles on the surface. I and mean, if you travel a trajectory along one of the circles, it gives you
2: the most efficient path from one point to another. So, the, just bring me back again to cur- so the space around the sun yep. gets compressed in some way. That's right. And therefore, it's a shorter route yes. to go closer to the sun as you're passing by it.
1: That's right. And the shorter route is a trajectory that we would normally call an orbital path. So, the Earth goes in orbit around the sun because that is the shortest trajectory that the Earth can follow in that curved environment.
2: Otherwise, the Earth would just keep moving find some other star. Exactly. Well, I'm, I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's you who put the equation on the table. I didn't believe someone did. Me, It wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> so this this is a really a good time to ask you a question that I get asked all the time, and I, and I wonder if you're exhausted from being asked this too. Why? Why do we have to help people understand science better than they do now? I mean, what difference does what we've just been saying make to anybody? Well, I think
1: I've sort of got two answers to that question. The first is, the, if you will, the more practical one, which is, look, you look out into the world and there's enormous opportunity and fantastic challenges that we face on so many fronts in alternative energy sources, in climate change, in the opportunities with personalized man- medicine and nanotechnology. And there's so much that we can do. And there's so much that we are going to attempt to do. And if you don't understand any of the underlying ideas, you can't participate in the decision-making. You can't participate in giving your representatives some sense of how you want things to go. So you become a bystander. And that, to me, infringes on the democratic process itself. So the health of democracy, I think, requires the populace to have some basic understanding of the key ideas that go into these decisions that will be made. But the answer that really touches me more deeply than that, that's important, I'm not taking away from that, is when I see a young kid and I'm talking to them about black holes or the Big Bang, and I and I see their eyes light up in a way that, tells me that they're so fired up about this cool idea. And when they say to me, I didn't even know that was science. Uh. You know, at that <laughs> point you say, wow, this is something that it's it's just tragic yeah. for 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 kids and adults to not at least be given the opportunity to wander around some of the
2: most wondrous ideas that the species has ever developed. I have a similar feeling, which is that, It's so beautiful. It's so entertaining to find out stuff we didn't know about the cosmos, about our own bodies, about biology and geology. Yeah,
1: right. I agree.
2: And um, I I almost
1: consider it a birthright that you need to be given the opportunity to engage with ideas that allow us to see further, deeper, and more fully what reality is all about.
2: those are a couple of reasons for knowing more about science that apply to all of us. But I wondered what Brian's own personal reasons were. When we come back after this break, Brian explores the roots of his passion for both science and for connecting with an audience. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Brian Green. What started you? What, what, what was the beginning of your entry into this as something that you loved rather than something you had to do? Well, it was, it was
1: young, and I think many theoretical physicists like me have similar stories, I suspect. But for me, it was all mathematics. And At an early age, my dad taught me the basics of arithmetic, nothing deep. You know, he was a high school dropout, but he loved these ideas. And once he taught me how to multiply, I just couldn't stop multiplying. <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> Like a cell.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> you know, so he would he would get these big sheets of construction paper and tape them together and write down these 30-digit by 30-digit numbers. And I would spend days and days doing these multiplications. Oh, great. And it wasn't for any purpose. Nobody cared about those numbers. But for me, it was to sit there and say to myself, nobody has ever done this multiplication problem before
2: that seems to be a very important impetus yeah. to to science yes the, i've heard it said so many times by scientists who discovered something about nature yeah the the phrase i'm seeing something no one's ever seen before that comes up over and over yeah. again it's yeah. i guess it's the, the feeling that uh, uh, the guy who saw the Pacific Ocean for the first time, from the guy from Europe who saw it for the first time, right? felt.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's something in our evolutionary makeup that I'm sure that the evolutionary psychologists can identify for us that makes us enormously drawn to being the first person to recognize something. And, you know, when I was multiplying 30-digit numbers, it didn't really matter that it was something new, but later on when you're actually staring at a result in, in theoretical physics that you've come up with, there is this deep sense of connection to the universe when you're sort of staring at something that you suspect nobody else has ever stared at before. And you have this new secret of the universe that's just yours for that moment. And
2: there's a wondrous feeling with that. So once you, once you got this understanding... Of the excitement of seeing things for the first time and and wanted to tell other people about it. How how did you get from one one of those to the other? Well,
1: you know, I I always felt that just doing the science wasn't quite enough because it felt so isolated. Exciting, but isolated. Mm-hmm. A small community, you write a good paper, and if you're lucky, you know, a few hundred people will read it carefully. Mm-hmm. I mean, the numbers are so small. And it just felt to me that these ideas should be out to a wider public. And it just sort of happened by chance. I gave a lecture in the Aspen Center for Physics for the general public, and it went well, and things just sort of went forward from there. But when I think back, you know, it was, you know, my my dad, I don't know if we've ever discussed this. My dad was a performer. He was a singer. He was a vaudevillian. He was a harmonica player, bass player. So in my house, it was a very performance-oriented household, even though I wasn't doing any of that stuff. Can you play any instruments? No, in fact, it's interesting because my dad... Found he was also a composer, being so such a difficult life that he wanted to steer us kids mm-hmm. away from the performing arts. What kind of music did he compose? It was more um, off Broadway musical type things. He had an off Broadway musical back in the seventies. Um, some popular tunes that some did quite well. A song called "Turnaround" that was recorded by Harry Belafonte and um, you know various other uh, pop stars. So. It was limited
2: success. There was that background yeah. of performing. It was that just you, there. You I mean, look,
1: Harry Belafonte was coming to our house sometimes every day for a singing, for vocal coaching. Really? Yeah, so I'd be in my room, and there's like Deo happening in the living room. <laughs> you know? so, so it was like in the air yeah, to be sort of yeah. out there, even though I wasn't one, at least in high school, I wasn't in like the high school play, and I wasn't in the high school sing. You know, that wasn't really right. my thing at all. Uh, But later on, I sort of migrated more in that direction.
2: What do you think you need to do to help people get from a general, sometimes misunderstood way of understanding science and get them on the right track? What do you have to do? Well, I think that you really need to speak about
1: things that matter to you. I think that to me is the it number
2: to the person listening? No.
1: Matter to the person speaking. In other ah. words, I I cannot just go out there and talk about anything, any science. It's like I'm not, you know, I have my science research and I have my science for the public, but I would never be like a science correspondent because hmm. I'm not one who just is um a vessel for taking scientific ideas and trying to translate them for the public. I need to really care about the scientific ideas. You
2: sound like you also need to have studied it deeply so you don't make a
1: mistake. That to me makes a big difference. And I have to tell you, when I look at folks who write for newspapers or do stories on television who are not scientists, I have tremendous respect for them because I wouldn't have the courage to go out there and talk about these scientific ideas if I didn't know them inside. Out.
2: I have that same feeling. I'm, I'm in awe of people who take on that responsibility. Yeah.
1: and 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 for the most part, they do a really good job. But for me, my process when I talk about these ideas for the public is I look at it, some idea, relativity, whatever, and I say to myself, what really matters? What can I cut out without loss of integrity? What ideas are essential for sort of connecting the dots? I wouldn't be able to do that if I didn't really understand the full mathematical underpinnings of what I'm talking about. That, for me, is vital.
2: How many years have we been doing the World Science Fest? Twelve years. Twelve years now. In that time... Have you seen a change in the response of the public? Has it gone up in terms of their interest? Has it gone down? What I know we're spreading around the world. Yeah. Uh, you but know, what, it, what's the response like?
1: It's hard to say whether the individual response is up or down. It feels pretty constant. But what certainly is the case is I think that the general public is actually quite sophisticated about a whole host of ideas. We have programs that really go pretty far into the undergirding of black holes or cosmology and things of that sort and people are willing to go along and they're hungry for it. In fact, I tell you something which is curious. You know, there's a general rule that when you're writing a book, you don't want to have any equations in it or yeah. the, the rule is you know for each equation you cut your audience in half, something like that. <laughs> On the other hand, you know, we find at the World Science Festival, we create videos and sometimes we make them a little bit more mathematical. And people really love it. It's not necessarily that they're following all the equations, but they enjoy seeing the real stuff, the real uh, ideas yeah, behind yeah. it. And and I think that, that that's unexpected to me. And, and it's heartening that people really want to know what's happening behind
2: the scenes or at least go as far as they can to grasp it. Do you find that, the World Science Festival is appealing to people more in one aspect of science than another, or is it... Yes, equal? without a doubt. What's the most interesting?
1: The 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 public that we reach is most excited about physics, cosmology, astronomy, and also neuroscience, the brain, and sort of the future of thought in, this inside This is so humanity. interesting.
2: This is just like that study that I I talk about a lot because it, it interests me so much. Somebody did a study on what were the most often emailed articles in the New York ah. Times science section. And they were not articles, as we might expect, about health mm. or exercise or diet. They were articles about Things that express the awe and wonder of nature. Yeah,
1: I can even go uh, in that direction, too. I mean, the World Science Festival has created programs on health and diet, programs on diabetes, programs on AIDS, programs on cancer research. And those are the ones that are the hardest sell. Mm. Although you'd think they would be the ones that are the most practical, maybe even the most useful but that's not where the excitement is generated the excitement is generated
2: in the big ideas of now and what some of the big ideas are bound to include or be based on basic research yes and it seems to to run counter to what you're saying because people generally are not interested in funding research and in, in helping fund research or pushing for funding for research in things that don't seem to have an immediate payoff. Yeah. They seem to want to learn about it and be entertained by exposure to these ideas. But they don't seem to be taking them seriously with regard to their own lives. Is it might you, do. You do you experience it the way I do?
1: Oh, I do. It's a, you know you could call it a paradox. I don't actually think it is, but there's definitely a, a disjuncture between what people would want to do with their time in terms of ideas that they want to be exposed to and engage with. Versus necessarily what they want to pay for. Uh, and uh, and that's sort of a, a funny thing. But I often wish that, you know, senators and Congress folks would recognize that the public really has an excitement for understanding how the world is put together. And it isn't only a matter of investing in things that are going to have a practical payoff the human mind is our most precious quality. And having that mind journey across the cosmos, journey to the beginning of time, I mean, those are journeys that are deeply moving. And in order that those journeys can be continued, you have to have the research that's going to continue.
2: I th- I've heard smart people say that everything or almost everything that's discovered in basic research, the way nature works at its most mysterious level, that that almost always leads to something practical. uh, Einstein's work took 100 years to, to result in GPS, which we now carry around in our pockets. Yes,
1: GPS and Einstein is a good example, but one that really comes to mind even more forcefully is quantum mechanics. I mean, here's a subject developed in the 1920s and 1930s that... I'm sure, seemed incredibly esoteric at the time. Particles and atoms and energy levels of electrons and Schrodinger equations. And Yeah, you know, it was so abstract, and yet quantum mechanics is why we have integrated circuits, which is why we have cell phones, it's why we have computers, it's why we have effectively every piece of modern technology. It wouldn't exist without the basic understanding provided by quantum physics. Yeah, So here's an example where if you were practically minded and were funding things in the 1920s and 1930s, you might have cut off funding for quantum mechanics. Right.
2: What about how you... Became focused on string theory. How mm. did that happen? What what led you to string theory? Because you, that's your that's your main serious professional work. Yeah, that's right.
1: right. Well, it, it it grew out of uh, I had a deep fondness and obsession, perhaps, with the force of gravity. Gravity to me was just this wondrous enigma. As I was in college, you know, I, I bought. My first textbook on general relativity when I was a a sophomore, I had no idea what it was. I couldn't understand it, but I kept it with me all the time, that book. And I'd open it, and I'd sort of sometimes caress the pages a little (laughs) bit, you know, because I knew I wanted to understand that stuff. You know, I tried reading
2: that way, too. It didn't work.
1: (laughs) I mean, it took a while, but, you know, certainly by junior, senior year, I, I understood the stuff. And I just wanted to understand gravity. So when I went to graduate school, that was my focus. And it was really fortuitous at that time, right the very first year of graduate school, string theory, the first major breakthrough happened. And this was the promise of a gravitational theory that would also involve quantum mechanics. Uh-huh. So I could not, not I had to work on it because it was exactly where I wanted to be. And it was also the ground floor of a new theory, which is always a wondrous time because you don't have to know a lot to make progress.
2: <laughs> I, I think I... I share your interest in gravity. I was waiting for somebody at a lunch table once in a restaurant. And for 15 minutes while I was waiting, I would drop a fork or a spoon on the table and just watch it rush to the table. Yeah. And I kept thinking, something's happening that I can't see. What is that that's happening?
1: Yeah. And if you would have said that, you know, whatever, 75 years earlier, you could have been Einstein. I mean, I that's know. what he was thinking. I could thinking. have been Einstein, yeah. but I turned it down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, a, that's a role that just didn't fit in. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. It, it, that is the question. And you're right. Even right now, there's something utterly amazing by the fact that you can take the Sharpie on the table in front of us and drop it, let go of it, and it knows what to do. Yeah. It moves toward yeah. the Earth. And how
2: does the Earth do that? How does the Sharpie know to do that? So is the Earth doing it in any way? I mean, there's the space around the Earth is curved. Yeah. We, we already figured that out earlier. Yeah. So, so now— What's, what role does the Earth play in it? This is a big hunk of matter?
1: It, it is what sets the curvature, and then the pen is sliding down that indentation.
2: All right, okay. So now you've got to solve this for me because I'm, I'm very anxious about this. What's the difference between the Earth causing the curvature in space and the Earth just attracting stuff? Well, both are fine languages,
1: and both can be used to predict the motion of the Sharpie that I just dropped. And both are accurate. But Einstein's, which is the one that involves the curvature and not the Earth pulling on the pen, gives predictions that in some situations are a little bit different than the predictions of the notion of the Earth pulling on the pen. These
2: predictions are useful in some way in the way that the other predictions aren't? Well, the GPS stuff that
1: you mentioned is one use of it. And um, certainly uh, from the standpoint of fundamental understanding – Einstein's predictions do better than Newton's. And therefore, that's why we like Einstein's language when we're talking in the
2: most precise way. So, I want to know more about this, the actual event of gravity. If I dig a hole a mile deep yeah. in the Earth and I go up a 1,000 feet above that hole and drop a bolt the bolt is going to travel faster and faster as it goes toward the hole. When it hits the opening of the hole, is it going to continue to go faster and faster? In other words, is gravity more extreme the closer you get to the center of the Earth than it is on the surface? Yeah. So what
1: matters is the total amount of mass that separates the bolt from
2: the center of the Earth. A well, what's such a big deal about the center? I thought the space around it was curved.
1: Well, the center is because in, 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 in some sense you are able to uh, replace the earth by a body that's compressed right at the center and has the same mass. And the theorem tells us that the gravitational pull of that little tiny nugget at the center Is the same as the gravitational pull of the Earth, which is a more complex body to have in mind. So the curvature does affect the Earth itself? It does. Now, when we solve Einstein's math, we usually only use the solution outside the Earth. But in principle, you could solve for
2: the curvature of space inside the Earth, too. Okay. Well, that makes it a lot clearer because I pictured this thing that was untouched by Oh, I see. I see. Now
1: I understand you're thinking on that. Yeah, no. So the curvature of the environment happens everywhere, even within the source of the gravity itself. But the bottom line is, I think the better answer to, now that I understand the question that that was puzzling you, is that when Einstein talks about the curvature of space and time, he doesn't mean it just outside bodies. Uh He means it everywhere, every nook and cranny of space, even within stars and planets, too. They are all Mm -hmm. subject to that curvature.
2: I don't know if anybody listening to this has had fun, but I sure have had fun. This is really... It, you know what I love about talking with you is I get the impression every time, we, and we never talk without getting into things true. like this. <laughs> I get the feeling that if I woke you up in the middle of the night and asked you the toughest question I could think of, you'd have a smile on your face and just start <laughs> talking in plain language. It, you, you seem to be able to do that without falling into the curse of knowledge problem, mm. which is that when, when we know things in such detail, that we forget what it's like to hear it for the first time we we don't talk in the language of the other person or with imagery or anything that helps them get it do you go through an experience when you do that that is conscious i know this i know i understand it in these terms is this person or this audience going to get it if i don't translate it
1: on, on occasion it's, it's a conscious thought often, more often than not it's not i'll give you one example where it was conscious when i was writing my first book The Elegant Universe, I knew that I had to have chapter four on quantum mechanics, but I was intimidated to write that chapter because I thought this material is going to be so hard to get across in a way that the general person without technical training will understand. So I wrote every other chapter. And within those other chapters, I kept referring back to chapter four. <laughs> so I had put so much weight
2: on chapter four. Oh, you guilt-tripped yourself. Yeah.
1: So then when it came to writing chapter four, it was a real conscious thought. How am I going to do this? And I would walk around Riverside Park walking the dogs late at night and just try to think of ways that I would get into the subject. And finally, through that deliberation, I came upon an approach that to me felt good, and I wrote it up, and it has been an effective way of describing the idea is a quantum physics. So there's a sort of a conscious version of it. But when I'm in conversation or just talking, I guess, I don't know, maybe one way of saying it is, all ideas are difficult for me, and I'm not trying to be, you know, all modest and everything. All ideas are difficult, and I never forget how hard they are to understand. And therefore, when I'm talking about them, I rely upon that intuitive sense that these ideas are tricky and need to be described in
2: a manner that bridges from the known to the unknown. That's so great. I, well, I have really, really had fun. Before we end, though, I don't know if you know, we ask seven quick questions. No, I do not know. uh Oh, now now I'm frightened. Don't be frightened. (laughs) They're uh, they're very—they're non-intrusive, non-invasive questions, and they're generally uh, roughly about communication and relating. Okay. Okay. First question: What do you wish you really understood? This is an interesting question to ask you because you understand so much. But what do you wish you really understood? I really wish I understood
1: the inner workings of the human mind. You know, I've spent a whole career trying to understand the outer workings of the universe. And I realized that all through that journey, it's ultimately been taking in the outer world and trying to process it within our heads, my head and the heads of my colleagues. And that inner world of conscious processing and and unconscious processing is so deeply mysterious to me that I wish I just had a clearer sense of what happens inside the human mind.
2: What do you wish other people understood about you? Oh goodness gracious! Um, you know, I, 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 you know, whether
1: it's understood or not, I don't know. But that I have um, a sort of a deep and uh, real organic interest in 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 having uh, everybody be able to enter into the world of these ideas, because I deeply feel that. It's part of our human nature to explore, and unfortunately, exploration has gone into languages that many people don't speak, and I consider that really tragic. So I I deeply care about trying to give everybody a way into these ideas. What's
2: the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
1: Well, I get a lot of strange questions of, of <laughs> yes. people who um, think the ideas of physics can answer things like extraterrestrials or ESP and things of that sort. <laughs> um, so I have a whole file cabinet full of the strangest questions that—, that Can you remember one? Oh, you know, some of them are, 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 are distressing. You know, some, you know, I get emails from people and letters from people who read The Elegant Universe or one of my books— and then one guy in particular told me, I've spent the last 20 years trying to take the theory further. And I just wanted to say to him, it's, it's just a translation. That's not the theory in the elegant universe. There's a whole body of mathematics that's out there. And without that, you can't push the theory further. Yeah. So it kind of almost was heartbreaking to imagine this individual who mistook, if you will, an attempt to explain the ideas for the actual rigorous ideas themselves. Yeah. How
2: do you stop a
1: compulsive talker? <laughs> well, uh, you ask them to recite Einstein's equations.
2: <laughs> <laughs> if you can get a word in That's edgewise. Right. <laughs> Unless he's already talking about Einstein's that, Then Then you're sunk. <laughs> There's nothing to do at that point. <laughs> If 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 we accept the idea of empathy as just not not compassion, but f- trying to figure out what the other person is going through, is there anyone for whom you can't feel empathy and you don't have to name names? Um, yes,
1: I I, I definitely uh, can be sufficiently off put by someone that it's very difficult to get over that hump. And um, I think that's part of our nature. Uh, We do our best to try to have a communal spirit. You know, we are hunter-gatherers over the course of thousands of generations, so that's part of how our DNA is constructed. But we also have outgroups, and that was clear (laughs) even back in the Pleistocene. So there are people who are in the outgroup, and it's very
2: hard to feel empathy. (laughs) How do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? You know,
1: the best way is... You know, I I asked my wife Tracy to do it. Oh,
2: great. Oh god. <laughs> so, is Tracy busy? I have some bad news for you to deliver. <laughs> yeah, right exactly. <laughs> okay, last question. What if anything would make you end a friendship?
1: If I felt that um a person had been deeply unloyal mm-hmm. in, in a way that couldn't be Um, justified through some other influence that I could wrap my head around. You know, I think, you know, life is short and the number of friends that you have is small. And if you're going to have an investment in each other, there has to be a deep trust. And if you violate
2: that trust, it's very hard to get it back. Well, I'm glad to be friends with you, and I want you to know I trust that what you're telling me is the real McCoy. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Great to talk to you, Brian. Great talking
1: to you as well. Thank you. Bye-bye.
2: This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to Discovery for being our presenting sponsor this season. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Alder Center, please visit aldacenter.org. Brian Green is a great friend of mine, and I find his work at the intersection of science and theater especially fascinating. He and I share the same passion for improving the public's appreciation of science, so we work together every year on the World Science Festival, which takes place annually in New York City and Brisbane, Australia. To find out more about this fun event, please visit worldsciencefestival.com. And for more details about Brian, including his lectures, books, film, and TV appearances, go to briangreen.org. That's Green with an E. This episode was produced by Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Coston. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with another man with the passion and skills for explaining the mysterious. Robert Sapolsky tackles with verve and humor something even more complex than gravity, human behavior. I think a huge percentage of people are capable of shocking themselves at how crummy their behavior can be in the right, unright circumstance and how heroically compassionate they could turn out to be in circumstances where they may not have expected it. And yeah, this... This capacity for extremes of pro-social and anti-social behaviors is just without precedent in the animal kingdom. Robert Sapolsky, next time on Clear and Vivid.